The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Welcome to another fantastic episode, Planting Bubs, Harvesting Smiles. I'm your host, Craig McManus. Today we're diving into the vibrant world of bubs with the one and only Brent Heath from Brent and Becky's Bubs. Brent is not just your average gardener. He's a renowned bub enthusiast, a masterful storyteller, and the co-owner of the famous Brent and Becky's Bulbs. Nestled in the heart of Gloucester, Virginia, his family-owned business has been spreading the joy of gardening for generations. But it's not just a business for Brent and Becky, it's a way of life, a passion that has taken root and blossomed into something truly extraordinary. Picture this, colorful flowers, contagious smiles, and a ton of gardening wisdom packed into one delightful conversation. Brent Heath isn't just a gardening guru. He's the friendly face behind those stunning blooms that light up gardens far and wide. Today, he's here to sprinkle a bit of his magic dust on your gardening dreams. From daffodils that dance in the sunlight to tulips that paint the town red, or any color you prefer, Brent's got the lowdown on how to make your garden one of the happiest places on earth. Grab your garden gloves, get ready to dig. Let's grow some smiles. This is episode 132, Plant Bulbs, Harvest Smiles, with Brent Heath. Brent, I imagine it's rather busy around Brent and Becky's bulbs at this time of the year with shipping season underway. What does that look like? (laughs) Frank, <laughs> it looks like a warehouse with pallet racking that is filled from floor to ceiling with black plastic crates of flower bulbs, some packed in bags of five, some packed in bags of 25, and some full crates that may have mm, 150 to 500 bulbs in a crate. There are literally millions of bulbs in the warehouse. Some of the teammates take the crates from the pallet racking and put them in the pick locations. And then we have order pickers who have a handheld computer, which they can scan the label on the bag of bulbs. They pick the orders and then take them down to packers who double check. It goes down the line and... We ship to our customers by UPS, FedEx, or Parcel Post. An email is sent to the customers letting them know how the bulbs were shipped and when they should approximately get there. It's a busy time. There are probably 20-some people in the warehouse right now shipping orders. Then there are three people in the bulb shop where we have a bulb display. I think the parking lot is filled today with looks like about 100 cars, so there must be some sort of meeting in our conference room. This is how things go at Brent and Becky's. There's a constant flow of people coming in. I met a couple of ladies from Baltimore, Maryland this morning who had driven down. They'd been customers for years but wanted to come and actually see what we do. I got a chance to see Becky's idea in teaching garden. This past weekend or the weekend before, the Chamber of Commerce put on a a wine festival in Becky's teaching garden. I think there were 10 wineries and a couple of breweries and a number of food trucks and a lot of craft vendors in the garden. We had a and a wonderful band playing on the bandstand in the garden. This is an active time of the year. Now, for blooms, it's interesting because it's beginning to be autumn-like, cooler nights. That's when the dahlias really like to grow. We do both spring flowering bulbs and summer flowering bulbs in two different seasons. The spring flowering bulbs are now shipping 
but the, the summer flowering bulbs will be shipped out in March, April, and May. All those summer bulbs are in bloom right now. The Zephyranthes, little rain lilies, that every time we get a thunderstorm, the ozone from the thunderstorm triggers them to bloom again. They're wonderful little bulbs that the flowers are about the size of a crocus. The Zephyranthes candida, candida meaning white. They are wonderful because they're in the amaryllis plant family. All amaryllis plant family members, like daffodils, or have alkaloids in them that make them critter-proof because there are some people who deal with, oh dear, the darn deer, <laughs> anyhow, and other critters, squirrels, rabbits, voles, not moles. It's nice to have bulbs that are critter-proof, but this time of the year you're seeing those summer flowering bulbs doing their thing at the end of their season. So it's a busy time here. I enjoy it when I get a call from the bulb shop saying, oh, somebody's here to see you. Uh, can you come up and visit? I do. I walk them around the garden. I do garden tours. I had a master gardener group here yesterday. There were 50 master gardeners from local master gardener group. I'd get a lecture, my bulbs as companion plant lecture, which helps people to visualize how to weave bulbs into the fabric of their gardens with annuals and perennials and ground covers and trees and shrubs. It teaches them which bulbs are somewhat shade tolerant because of course all plants leaves are solar collectors which gather sunlight and carbon dioxide and bring up nutrients from the soil and create starches and sugars which then go back to the bulb the battery so people understand solar collectors and batteries but some bulbs are tolerant of being in the shade either they have bigger leaves or they grow before the leaves come on the trees and which bulbs are critter resistant or critter proof. To help people to understand how they can have bulbs, like in Atlanta, you can have bulbs in all four seasons. There's one bulb that'll bloom every month of the year. Not one bulb, but there are bulbs that will bloom successively throughout the year. We help them to visualize how to create sequential companion gardens with bulbs. We can get all that from the garden where you've got examples? That's right. Now this is Becky's garden here. It's easier. We're pretty opposite. We have different ideas and it's okay. She gets to garden her way. I married a school teacher, musician, very organized thinker. So she has this teaching garden with 20 different themed idea garden rooms. Hopefully to give people the scope of, oh, I like that. I think I could do that. It's in the size of a home garden, not like a big botanical garden, like Atlanta Botanic Garden, one of our largest customers. That's a humongous big garden and awesome. They do a great job with their bulbs. We're hoping to have more home-scale gardens. Then we trial all the bulbs we sell also. When we get our bulbs, what should we do with them? I mean, do we go ahead and plant them as soon as we get them off the UPS truck? Or how do we okay. know when's the right time to plant them? We try to schedule our orders because we ship to all 50 states. We try to schedule our orders at the best planting time for each zone in the country. So the USDA has hardiness zones. Those with the smaller numbers get shipped to first because bulbs want to make their roots in soil that's basically around 50 to 60 degrees. They root very quickly. And once they make their roots, they're not subject to freezing. It's kind of like to get antifreeze. The cell walls have become elastic. So we try to get them up to those northern customers first so they can get them in the ground when the soil cools off. A good gauge for when the soil is cool enough is about the time you get your first frost. I think they're getting their first frosts in Maine now and very cool nights. The soil is cooled off. Then we will work our way south and we'll get to Atlanta probably sometime in November. We get to southern Georgia probably not until almost the 1st of December. So planting time is when your soil cools down enough for the bulbs to root and we'll try to ship them to you at that time. If you get your bulbs and you're not quite ready to plant yet, bulbs 
breathe, just like the root vegetables in a grocery store. They need air circulation around them. They don't necessarily need to be cold, they just need to stay dry until you plant them. Open the box. Our bulbs are all in mesh bags so they can breathe easily. Keep them dry and plant them. Try to gauge when your soil is getting cool. You can do it with the thermometer, but around the first frost is your best time to think about starting to plant. What are some of your favorite ways to enhance a garden with bulbs? Companion planting for me is my ideal. I've only recently gotten into the woody phase of my life, so planting interesting woody plants. I've developed an idea that I think is helpful to most people. We tend to look at gardens and we look for flowers. Not many plants flower all the time. So I've begun to look at foliage also. So in my garden, I try to create backdrops or walls with different colored foliage of different plants. And one of my favorites is camellias, and they do well in the southeast. I have my camellias just beginning to bloom. I had some right at the end of September. We're having a late fall. It's been warm longer. The camellias are blooming now, so I'll have them all the way until April. I have a lot of very pretty evergreen leaves of many plants like acubas and a whole variety of different plants with different leaf shapes, hollies. Hollies also have their fruits, but I look at that. Then I begin to think of creating, I begin to tear down from the shrubs to smaller things and end up with herbaceous plants in the front. Bulbs are herbaceous perennials. I begin to think in terms of maybe even doing a lasagna type planting with flowering plants. You make lasagna in layers in a pan. You can plant lily bulbs relatively deep, eight to 10 inches deep, because they do make roots on the stem above the bulb and they're taller, so you put them toward the back of the border. Then you may plant some daffodils in front of them. The lilies will bloom in the summer, daffodils in the spring. Range of bloom with daffodils is here from January until May. We've got a big time frame. Early, mid-season, and late, so you stagger. Then I intermix some tulips because they're the parrots of the bulb world. That's what Becky calls them. They are almost every color in the rainbow. They use all the colors, but some of my Dutch breeder friends, I think, are a little bit colorblind because some of the tulips they call blue are actually more what we would call purple. And then if you want some blues, you do some hyacinths in front. We're getting a little bit shorter as we get close to the border, the front of the border. Then we may do some anemones, I like the little bulbs that only grow three to six inches tall. I call them the shoes and socks in the garden. We've got them, we've got the pants, we've got a shirt, and then we've got the hats, the trees. Yeah. I like that. It's meant to be fun. We get all the bulbs in, then we come along with plugs of perennial plants and grasses and other things. We do a lot of plugs. We find deep plugs that are three inches deep are very good start in the garden. Those plants mature in a year. We'll plant them so we get perennials that will follow the bulbs and hide the maturing foliage. Also, the other benefit is they help to keep the bulbs drier when they're dormant. Just like you and I prefer to go and sleep in a dry bed, so do bulbs when they're dormant. If they stay too wet in the summertime, when they're dormant, they will catch a fungus and rot. That's often a problem that we encounter with people who have those mindless irrigation systems. You know what that is? It's on a clock and it, it comes on whether it's raining or not. Fortunately, they're relatively inexpensive moisture sensors now that work quite well to measure the moisture in the soil and turn irrigation on and they can do it and a pattern that leaves the bulbs drier, but also ornamental grasses and perennials 
help keep those bulbs dry. I go another step. Uh, Becky doesn't do this in her gardens. Actually, she calls me an orgy gardener because I put everything in bed together. I always like my beds to be full. I'm peculiar in that I enjoy weeding. I, I call it editing in my garden. I don't know, I take out those wildflowers that I don't think are very useful, and then when I disturb the soil, I will sprinkle some seeds. And I've just seeded some sweet william, which is a biennial. It's a dianthus. Comes up in the fall, winter's over, and blooms in the spring. Same is true with larkspur and with violas. So I've just seeded them. I will do some editing in my garden, so make sure they make some soil contact. They will come up and follow the daffodils and often bloom with the lilies. The gardening for me is just a game that I play. I don't play golf, I don't play tennis, and I don't play cards. I think there are too many people who talk about working in their gardens. I don't work in my garden, I play in my garden. The flowers are wonderful. They're just the icing on the cake. They're for maybe 10% of your garden. You need to have a lot of good cakes, so look for pretty leaves. I like variegated plants. I like gold-leaved plants. Now, Becky, at one point, she was not a gardener when I married her. She was a musician, and she was teaching one of my children. We'd each had a starter marriage. I began to show her some daffodils that had variegated foliage, and in the daffodil, it's not a good thing. There are a lot of plants that have different white streaks in them and spots and things like that, and it's fine. They don't have viruses. Some of the white-leaved daffodils, white-streaked daffodils do. But when I showed her that, then I showed her some variegated plants. She said, oh, those poor plants, they're sick. <laughs> she loves to say it looks like somebody spilled a little bleach on them. We don't always agree about gardening, so it's easier. She has her gardens and I have mine. Yeah. But, um, Makes a happy home. <laughs> yeah, I have lots of cake in my garden. I do have icing too, so I do have flowers, but I do have nice cake. Would you speak to some of the more unusual specialty type bulbs that y'all have? I think daffodils are the most spectacular of all. They're native to Europe, Spain and Portugal and France little bit into Greece, up into Austria, up into the Alps, in the Pyrenees. They're basically, daffodils are montane plants. They have alkaloids in them, they're amaryllis, which actually make them poisonous to critters. However, the critters have to eat a lot of them to really harm them. They taste terrible, is the great thing. The proper word for daffodil, the botanical name is Narcissus, Daffodil is simply the nickname. It was St. David's favorite flower in Wales, and that morphed into daffodil. There's nothing common about plants. I've stopped calling them common names. I think they have nicknames. We each have nicknames. Each of our grandmothers calls us by a different nickname. So why can't we call plants nicknames? Wherever you go, they have different nicknames. They have a proper name and a nickname. I like what you do with calling it nicknames. I'm going to use that. I'm going to steal that. I hope so. I hope so. Narcissus were taken to Great Britain by the Romans. Some have naturalized there. That term means a non-native plant that reseeds and spreads. Then they were brought here in the hems of ladies' skirts following their husbands who saw promise in a new land. But an ocean voyage, they couldn't bring a live plant, but they put them in the hems of their skirts. They could put a dormant bulb. They brought them with them. Some of the species ones actually do naturalize. They spread all over the East Coast. In the South, some of them brought the kinds of daffodils called jonquilla. The jonquillas are sweetly fragrant, have very narrow dark green leaves as opposed to big wide leaves of the trumpet types. Sometimes people mistakenly call daffodils jonquils. All jonquils are daffodils, but not all daffodils are jonquils. There are 13 different types of daffodils, and the bloom time from January until May. They are strong, they are beautiful, they're good for picking. And by the way, you do pick daffodils, you don't cut them. You run your finger down the stem, your pointer, you put your thumb next to it, you pull up and snap, and you get a solid white stem. Put it in tepid water, 
the hollow above will fill with water and it'll last a lot longer than if you cut it because if you cut it, you'll have a hollow stem and it won't hold water. They're great for flower arranging. The myth that daffodils kill tulips in flower arrangements, we arrange them all together all the time. I may leave my daffodils in their own tepid water to the warm to the touch for half an hour and then I use them in an arrangement. We combine daffodils with all kinds of flowers. They're great. We call them cut flowers, but they're pick flowers. Just remember that. Daffodils have a range of colors. They're predominantly yellow. There is one wild one. There are actually 50 or more species. They used to be 150, but then these taxonomist people, they lump them or split them, and then they change the names. One type, the Poeticus type, actually has a little red-rimmed yellow cup and white petals. From that color, bred onto some of the yellow ones and others, we now have about, oh, 30,000 different hybrid daffodils. Whoa. It's been awesome. Whoa. You plant them in the sun, they do want to be in the sun, they don't like growing in the shade. Now, the solar collectors don't get enough sunlight to recharge the batteries. You plant them in the sun, you'll have them for the rest of your life. Better still, if you feed your soil. Now, we don't use any chemicals at all. We use just compost. In our greenhouse production, we use only compost tea. We do use volcanic minerals, because often our soils are depleted. A product mined in Utah called A to Z minerals, or azomite. We find that's very beneficial. It boosts color and gives them some of the strength. Like when we eat plenty of probiotic foods for our biome, well, we feed the biome of the soil with compost and the minerals. We have great daffodils. Daffodils are my favorite. Tulips, parrots of the bulb world, they're colorful. Unfortunately, the thing with tulips is they're very edible. If you were to go in our tulip storage room, where there are probably several million tulips now, you would smell that smell. Most animals smell things a thousand times better than we do. We plant the tulips, and sure enough, squirrels come and dig them up, or the deer, or the voles. Now, one can put an organic, so it's safe, not chemical, repellent on the bulbs. You make a solution of something called plant skid, S-K-Y-D. The Scandinavian tree industry use it to protect new seedlings from deer depredation. Dip bulbs in it and that helps to keep them from being dug up. It's uh, sold in most garden centers. We have it in the back of our catalog as well. Okay. We've found it to be the best repellent. They have a guarantee for six months on I can't vouch for that. Yeah. Tulips are from Uzbekistan, Turkestan, Kazakhstan, predominantly, so high mountain deserts. Cold winters, warm, wet springs, but dry summers. We've bred those tulips, and now we have thousands of hybrids of tulips. They're beautiful and showy, but when they get our hot, humid, wet summers on the East Coast, they tend to catch a fungus and rot. The biggest demise for all bulbs is a fungus called fusarium. It just simply desiccates the bulb. It's like the Asian flu, or should I say COVID, but let's call it the Asian flu instead for bulbs. Keeping them dry in the summer, there some varieties of tulips are better uh, suited for our hot, wet climates, like the Darwin hybrid types. Great big ones, big and showy, and for some reason when they mature they got a very thick skin around them that helps to keep them in better shape. But tulips are also better in raised beds where the drainage is very good. We talk about irrigation. I think one of the largest problems in horticulture in home gardens is those mindless irrigation systems. Those, most plants' roots need air as well as moisture. I'll get off that soapbox. <laughs> Boy, tulips are awesome. Alliums, ornamental onions, are really popular. They are all the way from a flower the size of a marble 
all the way up to a flower the size of a beach ball. Wow. And again, they're high mountain desert plants. Cold is not a problem. Further south you go, the less they do. They like colder climates, but they are awesome, and the pollinators adore them. That's something we haven't mentioned. Almost all the spring flowering and summer flowering bulbs are great pollinator plants. Not many of them are larval food source plants. However, the daffodils are not visited by insects in our country, so very few of them, the hybrids, very few of them actually naturalize. Whereas some of the tulips do, species tulips in particular. Some of the species tulips are actually from Eastern Europe, and they do better in our gardens, the little Clusiana types and the Tulipa sylvestris. We've actually had them come back for a number of years. But it's better if we plant them under a shrub. They're getting light from the south and the east in the spring, so they're not blocking the sunlight. The shallow roots of the shrub help keep them dry in the summer and help protect them also. The companion planting thing is fun. I like a perennial called stackas or lamb's ears. Critters don't like it. They don't like those fuzzy leaves. Little tulips love to be planted in a companion relationship with that. So that works really well. Little crocuses do well in pachysandra or ajuga. And the critters don't like. You match your bulbs to perennials that critters don't like. You have natural repellency as well. Lilies are a favorite also. The lilies are almost all summer blooming. Lilies are incredible for their fragrance, the color spectrum. We don't go into blue, but we have a range of wonderful colors. The pollinators adore them, the butterflies, and actually kids like to see them too. If you take a kid over and the lily flowers have six perianth segments, three petals and three sepals, but you pull that petal off and you ruin the beauty of the flower, but there are drips of nectar right on the central keel of that, and you can put your finger on it, and it tastes like honey. Mm. Kids get that, and I really enjoy taking young people through the gardens and getting to smell the different fragrances, but also feel the textures. Like all the mint family members have square stems, and they think that's really neat once they discover that. Daughter-in-law, Denise, who runs all the events here at our business, she brings in lots of school groups and home school groups and then you know, public school groups, they bring buses and sometimes Jay takes one segment, I take another, Becky takes another and Denise takes another and we rotate them around the garden and give them a fun lesson. Mine has been building compost. She had a snack for them and they had to pull the the top off the strawberry and then they'd peel the banana we put those right in the compost and I dug into the compost we gave them a glove so they could stick their hand in and they couldn't believe it was <laughs> 100 degrees in there he explained that's all little animals the bacteria and fungi helping break down that material if you give it air and it breaks down and gets really hot sounds like a great experience for them and that just makes it real for them, too. I made a big mistake one year. Now, Becky and Jan Denise run the business. I don't. I'm dyslexic and I have attention deficit. Made a bad numerical mistake one year. One of our large customers, Longwood Gardens, had ordered 12,000 each of five varieties of daffodils to create a river of daffodils. This was 35, 40 years ago. When we got the bulbs from my warehouse in Holland, we got 21,000 of each. It turned out I transposed numbers. I did my best to sell them, but then Becky had an idea that we should get every child in the school system plant a bulb at his or her school, and then a bulb to take home. We got the kids to write their names on a popsicle stick and put it in the hole with the bulb. That gave them ownership of that bulb. You'd go there to see them in the spring, the kids would come out and they'd say, that's my bulb over there. You couldn't see the popsicle stick. We had a kid's daffodil show. Eventually, it morphed into a um, kid's daffodil show coupled with a dog show. They had the magnificent mutt and daffodil show. They decorated dogs and then bicycles and ponies. We now have a daffodil festival in Gloucester <laughs> at a 
They have a parade coming through downtown and a big daffodil show. It's been a great thing. But we do like to get kids involved. Yeah. Now, I've heard about this mass planning bulb machine you've got. Oh, wow. Well. I'm pretty fascinated with that. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, now that's Jay's baby. And I don't know if his microphone works and whether he should tell you about it. I can give you a little bit of background on it. Our partner company in Holland has been planting bulbs this way. They were looking for somebody to handle U.S. They got a hold of us through a reference. We acquired this piece of equipment that can plant, depending on what we're planting and where we are planting, 10 to 30,000 bulbs in an hour with just two people, an operator and then eyes on the ground. I did a demonstration for a group one time. Once we were underway, we planted 4,000 daffodils in two minutes. (laughs) Basically, it lifts up six inches of turf Mm -hmm. and folds it back. It has to be turf. The hopper holds the bulbs, but they come down and hit a conveyor that spaces them on the ground, and then it simply puts turf right back on top. I wonder how something like that would work in Georgia, where we have so much rock in the soil. The Georgia Department of Transportation is a a huge customer as far as roadside plantings go. I've been itching to get in on the end of the contract and and bid to get down there. There is a lot of rock in places, especially the further you go west. A lot of places where they're doing these roadside plantings, the soil is brought in as fill. And you don't tend to hit as many things as you would find just in a natural environment. There was a cloverleaf in uh, Howard County, Maryland, had us come up and plant 480,000 daffodils around the cloverleaf, and three guys did that in uh, about five and a half, six days. Wow. New York Botanic Garden, you did a half a million daffodils in their bulb meadow. And down in Dallas, Texas, you've been planting. I'm heading to Fort Worth, Texas again this fall for the fourth time. I think I put in 100,000 the first time. I think a total are going to be close to 350,000 bulbs that I've put down at Fort Worth, down at Botanic Gardens. Virginia uh, Department of Transportation, you planted uh, some of the rest stops here. Rest stops, yeah. It's great for open places with good turf, good drainage, good sunlight. The speed at which we can plant really cuts down on the labor cost. The expense is the bulbs, and then we come in for a little more, and we can just put them in the ground for you, lickety-split, and you'll have just fantastic displays in the next spring. Sounds like it takes more time to get there than it does to actually plant them. Sometimes it does. In fact, heading to Fort Worth, it's a two-day drive down, two-day drive back. You, you work for a day. <laughs> <laughs> we went out to Indianapolis and planted a bunch of bulbs. It took us about a day and a half, almost two, to get there three hours to get the job done and we turned around and drove home mm. it was very kind of a surreal feeling of it really we drove all this way boom put them in the ground turned around that same moment and just started heading back home it really happens quickly yeah. he's done some home landscapes as well yeah. created some rivers of bulbs for yeah. people in a turf situation yeah. i've filled a backyard i've done a long long driveways that are open and they had this beautiful fenced driveway. Just You can see the house off in the distance, and we just ran a bunch of daffodils along either side of the drive, and in the springtime it was just like heaven's gates opened, and it was gorgeous. <laughs> I bet, I bet. I can only imagine. The College of William and Mary has a nice planting that Jay has done yeah. near the Wren Chapel. I get around. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like it. Let's scale back to maybe the opposite end from mass plantings to many homes these days. They don't have a whole lot of room to plant in. Maybe all they have is a patio or a deck. Can these people enjoy bulbs also? Yes, they do. Basically, big bulbs like daffodils and tulips, they're four bulbs to the square foot to get a nice focal impact to begin with and give the bulbs enough room to multiply. In a small home situation, you may want to plant a clump of five or 10 if you're gonna view it from 10 to 15 or 20 feet. If you're in a bigger landscape, certainly you want to plant 50 or 100 if you're gonna view it from 100 feet. Some bulbs lend themselves to large containers 
as long as those containers can stay uniformly cool all winter. Now you remember, the bulbs root best at 50 to 60 degrees. Once they rooted, the cell walls become elastic and they don't freeze over the winter until you get that midwinter thaw and they start to grow prematurely. Then you've got another cold spell that goes well down into the teens. That sprouted bulb can freeze. Important for the containers just to be cooler, somehow insulated or something, to keep them cooler over the winter. We've got a lot of people doing containers of bulbs. We do maybe 50 containers of bulbs in Becky's garden. These are containers with thick foam core. It's like the insulation in the wall of a house. It's keeping that soil uniformly cool. In a week or two, I'll be doing a living flower arrangement workshop where we layer five layers of bulbs in a pot with a color theme. Mm -hmm. It's a 12-inch pot. We'll put about three or four inches of soil in the bottom. We do use soil. We don't use dirt. The soil's alive. We like compost medias because they have life in them. We like a coarse media for growing bulbs in containers. Those roots have something to hold on to and have good drainage. Also have some nutrient value. We put the first layer of bulbs in and in round pots you do odd numbers. In square pots you use even numbers. We'll do three to five daffodils in a clump. You don't put them the distance apart that you do in the soil. In the soil, you want to plant bulbs three times their height deep. A one-inch bulb goes three inches deep to the bottom of the hole. A two-inch bulb goes six inches deep to the bottom of the hole. Well, in the container, that's different. You want more soil under the roots. So you start off with good soil under that first bulb. You put some soil around there next. You put a circle of the next one around. So if you've done three in the first, the big daffodil in the center, the tallest thing, then you have a shorter tulip. You have five of them around the daffodil. You put them in shoulder to shoulder. In the garden, you're gonna plant them three times the width of the bulb apart. So about six inches apart for the big ones. But in the container, close, because they're there for one season. When we get up, we do a daffodil, a tulip, a hyacinth, then maybe a grape hyacinth, and maybe a little short anemones around the outside edge. And we can do them in color themes. We select all the same bloom time, they'll bloom simultaneously. If we select different bloom times, they'll bloom sequentially. We don't think that's as focally effective. We try to do all the same bloom time, we do red, white, and blue containers. We do pink, white, and purple containers, so cool colors. We do yellow, red, and orange, warm colors, or all white. The fun with the white one is they show up well at night under lights. It's fun. People take them home. We teach them how to overwinter them, uniformly cool in a cold garage, or under the crawl space under their house or on the north side of a building covered with leaves, etc. And bring them out when no longer danger of hard freeze at night, no longer below the low 20s probably. Then you can put them on the patio. You'll have them bloom. When they finish blooming, that's when you begin to look for the empty spots in your garden. You'll stick them in. They may not bloom as well the next year, but they'll catch up eventually. Sometimes people kind of wonder where to plant their bulbs in the fall. The time to look around and see where you have empty spots is in the spring. Some people who play golf probably don't use plastic golf tees. They have to have proper wooden ones. I have some cheap plastic golf tees that come in multiple colors and use them to mark the empty spots in the spring where you want to plant your bulbs you'll know then where you don't have something planted already. How did you get started in the bulb business? <laughs> My grandfather ate a cantaloupe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the story is in Reader's Digest in 1956 called Gold Was Where He Found It. My grandfather was a damn Yankee. You know, a damn Yankee means you've been accepted. <laughs> no longer a Yankee or damn Yankee. He came south in 1900. He bought a lovely old plantation and 600 acres of farmland. 
he noticed that ladies were picking daffodils and bringing them to the steamboat landing. In the turn of the century, there weren't many roads here. All commerce was by water. We're in Tidewater, Virginia. So we're on an estuary off the Chesapeake Bay. He'd seen better daffodils in Europe, modern hybrids, and he brought them back and planted them. They grew so well, he began to sell them to local farmers. And by the time the Depression came in the 30s, Gloucester and Matthews counties grew more daffodils than anywhere in the country for picking the flowers. He was selling bulbs to these local people, and then he ended up selling bulbs to people all over the country. I go to Winterthur Museum and help identify their heirloom daffodils that my grandfather sold them. New York Botanic Garden, the same thing. Hmm. I've seen the results of my grandfather starting. My father came back from working in the tobacco industry in China, took on the daffodil farm. At one point, he grew about, oh, several thousand acres of daffodils here in Gloucester. I grew up, the Second World War changed things. I was born in 45, he was 60 years old. Whoops, I was a surprise. But in any event, I grew up picking daffodils and digging bulbs, hard, hot, dirty work. I decided to take a career as a summer camp director. I directed a summer camp called Nature Camp from 68 to 72. My mother wanted to sell the business and an aunt left me enough money to buy it. Then I bought the business in 72. I grew a bunch of daffodils here, several hundred acres. After a starter marriage that didn't work, Becky was teaching one of my children. We did everything ourselves. With our children helping to dig the bulbs on the bulb digger and stuff like that, eventually we realized that one of my father's friends was in Holland and invited me to come for a visit, and I did an area in Holland called the Brazond Annapolona Polder. was a new area that they went out into the sea and built the dike and drained the land. That was an ideal area for growing the bulbs. He convinced me to start connecting with some of the growers who were interested in the new varieties. Like I had 5,000 different varieties of daffodils at that time. We formed some partnerships and then eventually we incorporated a business in Holland we contracted with growers to grow these varieties for us. Then we started hybridizing. One of my father's friends, a mentor, was a daffodil breeder. He taught me that I was just going to be a bee in the hands of the Lord, that I was going to go and spread the pollen. We did that every spring for a good while. We selected a real strong, good daffodil that lasted for a long time, had good color, and we looked often for smaller ones and fragrant ones and we take the pollen and put it on the pistol and if the time of the hour was right not the time of the month but time of the hour those pollen grains would grow back to the ovary find an ovule pollinate it would turn into a black shiny seed we would plant that five to seven years later see it bloom for the first time they are in our catalog today we do have grower group who grow them for us called spectrum bulbs they contract grow for us. The business in Holland is now run by a family named Degudi who own the warehouse and some of the growing fields where we grow some of the bulbs. They in turn also contract with the growers. The growers deliver the bulbs to our warehouse in Holland. They're inspected by USDA. We have an agent there who inspects. They're cleaned, graded, packaged, put into climate-controlled containers. We have a phytosanitary certificate, which allows them to come into the United States. They're put on a container ship in Rotterdam, taken off in Chesapeake, Virginia. I think we're waiting for container number eight to come. We're busy shipping out orders. We'll ship five or 600 orders a day. Becky enabled me to go out and lecture I've now been to every state except North Dakota and Hawaii to lecture, to help people to have fun gardening, playing in their gardens with bulbs, teaching them how. I've enjoyed it immensely. I do consulting work, done a lot for the public gardens around the country. The majority of our bulbs go to public gardens. 
majority of our customers by far are home gardeners. The big quantities of bulbs go to the public gardens around the country. We're blessed to do what we do. It's so nice to do something that positively impacts somebody else's life. Flowers make people smile. That smiles feed the soul, makes you feel better. We feel very blessed that the Lord has let us do what we do. Exactly, yeah. What do you wish people would do differently when designing or building a garden? I do a radio talk show most Monday mornings. And Jay sang a theme song for it. (laughs) Can you sing it, Jay? (laughs) Anyhow, it goes with compost, compost. (laughs) One of our customer service ladies said, what does Brent suggest you do for your garden? And she said, he suggests three things, compost, compost, and compost. You feed your soil and give plants enough light and everything does well. One of the biggest problems is people plant their daffodils, and I get these calls. The caller will say, those daffodils are so beautiful for the first year. And I know I could answer right away then, but I'm polite. I wait for them to finish. And they say, the next year they were nice, but not as good as the first year. They say, this year they're not blooming. What's wrong with those bulbs? And I say, did you plant them in the shade? And they say, oh, no, there weren't any leaves on the trees when they bloomed. Hello? You just told me you planted them in the shade. Plants and leaves are solar collectors, and keep that in mind. If you're going to plant in the shade, select early bloomers, and don't plant in evergreen shade because you don't get any light through that. But also, if you have an opening on the south and the east side, the sun arcs over to the south in the winter. You'll get more light in from the bottom. For spring flowering bulbs, if you do have shade, By all means, amend your soil with compost. Do not dig a hole and put compost in it in heavy clay. You'll create a bog. Instead, we put compost right on top of the soil. Becky gardens in heavy gray-mottled clay with a high water table. She puts six inches of compost on top. We lay the bulbs out, and we use a piece of concrete reinforcing wire, those six-inch squares. You put a bulb on each square, you've got four bulbs to the square foot. Then we move it and mark again. Then we cover with a little more compost and mulch on top. We use a lot of mulch. We use wood chip mulch. However, the wood chip mulch, it's important that it has aged at least six months, but better still for a whole year. Then we interplant with perennial plugs and things. We get nice sequential gardens that persist for a long time. For weed control, they use a soil knife with a serrated edge on the blade and just, uh, we instead weed and mulch. Mm. So pine needles are great for those of you in the south. They're one of the best mulches possible. I use them extensively in my gardens. They really do help with weed control. They don't acidify the soil. Now for soil, pH neutral is best, but daffodils will take it On the acidic side, lilies prefer a little bit more on the alkaline side. Wood ash is an excellent source of nutrients, of trace elements. They do sweeten the soil somewhat. For landscape contractor, if you don't have enough bulbs to get Jay to come and plant, use an auger on a drill. I use a 36-inch auger so I don't have to bend down, a 3-inch in diameter on my DeWalt drill and I just drill the holes where I want. Somebody else comes and sticks the bulb in the hole and rakes the soil back in on top. It's not absolutely necessary to put the bulb pointy end up. In the fields where we plant the planting machine, it doesn't stick them upright. The bulbs have contractile roots. Once planted, once the roots emerge, they right themselves. Don't put them upside down on purpose. then it takes more effort for them to write themselves. What garden myth would you like to smash? There's several real no-nos. Martha's been awesome in teaching people to enjoy their homes and gardens, but in the beginning, Martha was showing people how to braid daffodil leaves after they bloom. One of the big problems is, and books even show you how to put rubber bands around them. 
that's daffodil suffocation. That'd be like putting a black plastic garbage bag over your head. You cut off light so they can't photosynthesize. You're creating a moist fungal situation. Often the bulbs catch the fungus and start to rot when you do that. Leave the foliage at least 10 weeks after they bloom. Plant, interplant with daylilies, interplant with other perennials that come up and hide maturing leaves. When the leaves begin to yellow, they're losing the chlorophyll, just like the trees are beginning to lose the chlorophyll now and the leaves are falling. When they begin to lose the chlorophyll, go ahead and cut the foliage if it's 10 weeks after bloom. Do not tie it in knots. Do not put rubber bands around it. That's one of the biggie, bad ones. Never put fertilizer in the hole with the bulb. Even though the bags of fertilizer that are called bulb food, and it's not bulb food at all, it's, it's like a Red Bull that kids are drinking these days. It often has too much nitrogen, gives excessive cellular growth, makes them more attractive to insects that sends out a little calling card, come and eat me, I'm sweet. Also more susceptible to fungal diseases. If you put fertilizer in the hole, it burns the tender roots as they're emerging. We'd far prefer to feed the soil and feed the microbes in the soil that make everything that the bulb needs available and much better for the environment. Our Chesapeake Bay suffers greatly from all the chemicals that are sold in the box stores that make it seem like it's easy, but it's a shortcut that does not work. It's far better. Every leaf that's picked up on the curbside is composted these days. Ask your public works department if you can get some of that compost they're making with the leaves. A leaf compost is ideal. Have you got a funny garden story you could tell us? And it just happened the other day. We're going through the garden with the Master Gardening Group, and I'm telling them about a lot of things with the different bulbs. Somebody asked me a question about something, and I couldn't think of the name right then, so I said, oh, and that's a nice one. A couple of minutes later, she came up catalog in hand, and she says, I can't find a nice one in your catalog. <laughs> the one that I get more mileage out of than any is one day we had Big Garden Club come. We'd been through Becky's garden, but then we're going through my garden, and Becky thought she ought to herd the cats, herding garden club ladies, <laughs> trying to keep them together. There are four or five that are yeah, intently interested in, on everything I'm saying, because I love to talk, and, and I enjoy sharing my garden. We get down to the end, and, and I guess I'm probably flirting just a little bit or something. They were cute acting, and I just responding to them. And anyway, we get down to the end, and one poor girl makes a mistake of saying, Brent, how do you remember all these names? Before I could say a word, Becky said, Oh, sweetheart, don't let him fool you. Makes him up as he goes. <laughs> <laughs> so I've gotten a lot of mileage out of that because when I'm giving a talk in front of an audience and I just have one of those mental cramps, the floppy disk doesn't fall in the right order, I tell that story, and while I'm telling that story, the name comes to me and I can go on with my lecture. Yeah. Who gave you your most memorable? garden advice? Wow. My father, in some ways, because he was a man of nature, he just was quite at home, this amazing earth that the Lord gave us to be a part of. He connected with everything. He used a lot of organic matter. He used cover crops, he collected leaves and brought them and put them in the gardens, he used them as mulch. He was a shell collector and I'm now a shell collector. He collected plants and I'm now a plant collector. Some of his friends were also tremendous mentors to me. They shared their success stories with me. I learned things and then they also let me know things that they tried that didn't work. Mr. Grant Mitch in Oregon was one of my fathers. Also a gentleman in Holland, Matthew Zenbergen, who introduced me to many of the growers who now grow the bulbs that we sell. 
He was a wonderful mentor, and he loved coming to this country. He spoke English very well. A number of the older Dutch people that I have met over the years had a little more difficulty, and often I didn't speak Dutch well, but I I could do pleasantries, etc. Anyhow, he loved the American language. We don't speak English. We speak American. As he went around the country, and often I was going with him to daffodil shows and things like that, we would stay with people, and he would get people's sayings from around the country. I can remember he thought some were so funny, and he wrote them down. He's gone, and his kids can't remember where the book was that he'd written them down. We say, oh, he came like a bat out of hell. He wrote down all those funny little things. What is your most valuable garden mistake? I kill plants, (laughs) but I never kill them twice in the same spot. If you're going to kill a plant in the same spot, there's something that's gone wrong. You need to find a different microclimate, a different soil condition, and if you like the plant enough, you're going to try it again. But I'll never do it twice in the same spot. That's a biggie, and that's what I try to get across to people when they call and they say, oh, those bulbs you sent, they didn't come up. (laughs) So I go through the whole list of potential reasons they didn't come up. First of all, I say, were they good and sound when you got them? Were the bulbs the weight of a golf ball or a ping pong ball? If they were the weight of a golf ball, they had plenty of life in them. If they were the weight of a ping pong ball, much lighter the life was gone. The fungus has gotten them and eaten them. They say, oh, they were fine when I got them. I give them four or five more potential possibilities. A woman called recently. She was in Alaska. I think the bulbs were frozen in transit. And in that case, we do put a credit on their account for the bulbs. She would have gotten the bulbs in good shape, but she didn't. We try to help people to be successful and figure out what may have gone wrong. What have you recently learned about horticulture? Oh, do you know Calicarpa? Yes. Beautyberry? It has purple fruits right now, our native. I was pretty certain that they were edible. I think Native Americans used them. Do you know that Pocahontas was born here in Gloucester County? Her daddy, Chief Powhatan, ruled the whole Algonquin nation from Gloucester County. We had some ethnobiologists, or botanists, or whatever, and Werowicomico is our newest national park, not yet open to the public. They did a lot of the fire pits and all. They were able to analyze seeds and a variety of things. Calicarpa was something that was big in their fire pits. There was a post on Facebook. I do Facebook every day. I keep up with my friends all around the world. There's one person posted this from a reputable source. I think it's important to be a reputable source for you to believe it on Facebook. Calicarpa has its leaves a very strong insect repellency. You rub the leaves on you and the mosquitoes shouldn't bite. They're good flea repellents for dogs and things like that. Put them around dogs' beds. That was an interesting one. Very interesting. I didn't know that, and I've got some growing in my garden. Now, the birds spread it around quite well. But I like to share with other people. I even have a pink-fruited form called Welch's Pink. Then I have several of the Asian ones. Those are white. Yeah, smaller fruits. Etc. Okay. Is there anything else I should have asked you? Our motto at Brent and Becky's Bulbs is plant bulbs and harvest smiles. We can eat positively impact somebody else every day of our lives. So often people garden for themselves in their backyards. We hope more people will garden in their front yards. Because people who pass by, they're just a glimpse of color will inwardly make somebody smile and elevate their mind and mood. They'll have a better day. I strongly believe we can each positively impact somebody else every day of our lives, either by speaking to them, waving to them, smiling at them, opening the door for them. Some simple little thing can make somebody else's life a lot better. Brent, tell us how people may connect with you. People may connect with us in a variety of ways. 
We do have a mail order catalog. We do have a shop on site where people come and then they visit Becky's garden, a five-acre teaching garden. They can connect with us over the internet. Social media is another way. The website address is Brent and A-N-D, Becky's, B-C-K-Y-S, Bulbs, B-U-L-B-S, dot com. We have customer service people answering the telephone. So call us at 804-693-3966, and they will get a lovely telephone agent who will give them a hug over the phone. If they have a horticultural question, telephone agent will give them my cell phone number. I will be out playing in my garden, but I can still weed with one hand and talk on my cell phone with the other. I enjoy helping people be successful gardeners. This has been episode 132, Plant Bulbs, Harvest Smiles, with Brent Heath. Thank you, Brent. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.